You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 402 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week, we have Joanna Gomez on the line from Cali, but she's doing her PhD at Goldsmiths University in London. And yes, we finally found our expert in... Well, witchcraft in Colombia. Well, she's doing it academically, but this is more of an ethnographic show today. And we've been talking to her about her findings and her experiences when she's researching, let's say, witchcraft in the Llanos of Colombia in the context of Colombia's conflict. So how very interesting is that? Thank you again to all of those who signed up this last week to the Columbia Calling podcast on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And for as little as $2 a week, you can support myself and Emily Hart with the newscast. Uh, That's the Monday newscast here through Patreon. There are other ways, of course, to um, help us out, and I'm searching and finding new places in addition to PayPal, which are sort of, let's say, secure places at which you can donate to sponsor the Columbia Calling podcast. And of course, I am immensely grateful because week in, week out, we are increasing our listener rates. Uh, and that's only a good thing, isn't it? Uh, yes. And so we are going to be talking about witchcraft today. But last week, of course, was important. We were, well, while the COP26 was ongoing in Glasgow, we discussed with environmental activists the Rio Atrato in Choco, a very overlooked part of the country. And prior to that, of course, was episode 400 with Adam Isaacson giving us, you know, a review of what's going on in Colombia from his recent visit with uh, Congressman McGovern, that's Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, who was down here, who's, who's spent a lot of time in Colombia and has a lot of interest in ensuring human rights in the region. So this week is Johanna Gomez. Uh, next week, it's either one between explorations uh, with the Kogi people in the Sierra Nevada or potentially we'll be talking to Colombia's first, I think, and only, well, she'll obviously put it right, female uh, grandmaster, chess grandmaster. And of course, hers is a story of uh, overcoming the hardships in Ibagué, Tolima, and then uh, well, emigrating through a chess scholarship to the United States where she now lives. So hopefully one of the two will come forth for next week. But we've got a huge lineup, people lining up to be on the podcast. And even, I hope, uh, somewhere down the line we'll be talking to a Brit who's uh, been here in Bogota for a very long time and during the pandemic or prior to the pandemic launched a very, very successful online sex shop. So there you go. Uh, But always interesting stories here on the Columbia Calling podcast. A little bit of a heads up. We'll take a couple of weeks off in December, just so you know. Uh, Of course, we need time to recharge as well. Thank you to our listener who came out uh, to Mompos this last week. Thank you. You know who you are. Uh, I believe you are hoping to meet me in Mompos, but of course, as my children are at school in Bogota, we are most of the time here. But thank you again for coming to Mompos and supporting a small family-run establishment such as La Casa Amaria, uh, my little first hotel guest house there, opened in 2008. So right now, I'll leave you in the capable hands of Emily Hart, and then we'll be back with Joanna Gomez discussing witchcraft in the context of Colombia's armed conflict. Thank you again. Don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of November 15th, 2021. 
Colombia's prosecutor is seeking prison sentences of between 8 and 22 years for the organisers of this year's national protests, known as the Paro Nacional. According to the prosecution, the protesters face charges of terrorism, conspiracy to commit a crime and vandalism. Thirteen alleged members of the Primera Linea, the front-line protest organisations, were arrested in Bogotá and Medellín last week. Judges have, however, so far refused to jail the vast majority of protesters after rejecting the prosecutor's attempts to prove criminal or terrorist activities during the largely peaceful protests. Crisis continues in Argelia, in the department of Cauca, as clashes between armed groups and the Colombian security forces continue to affect thousands of people, with mass displacement of more than 6,500 this year, according to the Ombudsman's office, forced to leave their villages and seek refuge. Numerous dissident FARC groups, as well as the ELN, are present in Argelia, which is one of the most productive enclaves of coca farming, according to the UN, with an estimated 8.5 thousand hectares under cultivation. It is also a key corridor for trafficking and armed groups. Residents are calling for an end to the violence and the implementation of the 2016 peace deal, especially the provision related to the crop substitution programme, state support for coca farmers to change over to other crops. Crop substitution is crucial in Argelia, but according to the mayor of the municipality, implementation has so far been zero. The trial of Alvaro Uribe continues, overcoming another legal obstacle put in its path by his defence team. The former president faces trial for procedural fraud and witness bribery in another case which investigated his links with the formation of paramilitary groups. This Supreme Court investigation began in 2018 and made Uribe the first president in Colombia's history to be formally accused of being a criminal. When Uribe resigned from the Senate, he and the prosecution wanted the Supreme Court to drop the charges. They refused and sent his case to the prosecutor's office. So the former president went to the Constitutional Court to argue that his rights had been violated. This week, the Constitutional Court, in a controversial 5-4 vote, rejected that argument. However, other barriers remain to the investigation of Uribe's alleged fraud and witness tampering. In parallel, the hearing over Chief Prosecutor Francisco Barbosa's own request for the shelving of that case continues and is nearing its conclusion. Meanwhile, President Ivan Duque has rejected the results of the Nicaraguan election, in which Daniel Ortega secured a fourth term. Election observers from the European Union and the Organization of American States were not allowed to scrutinize the process, and journalists were barred from entering Nicaragua. Meanwhile, Cuba, Venezuela and Russia offered Ortega their backing. Duque stated that, amid jailed opposition and repression of the press, the elections were not free and that he clearly cannot recognise the results. Controversy continues over Defence Minister Diego Molano's proclamations made in Israel that Israel and Colombia have a common enemy, Iran and Hezbollah. The statement attracted attention because diplomatic relations have existed with Iran since 1975. President Ivan Duque was later obliged to clarify that Iran is not, in fact, an enemy. In a new survey of opinion leaders by Cifras y Conceptos, Diego Molano received the lowest ranking of all Colombian ministers, with a score lower than that of any other Minister of Defence in the last 13 years. Prosecutor Francisco Barbosa has the worst image among prosecutors since the survey began being conducted. Meanwhile, entities like the Central Bank the Constitutional Court and the Transitional Justice Court, the HEP, had high levels of trust, seen as doing their best to independently fulfil their functions. President Ivan Duque has now signed the 2022 budget, which suspends the Law of Guarantees, a measure designed to fight corrupt public contracting around election time, akin to vote-buying. The signing was controversial because this week a Bogotá judge upheld a motion stating that by voting through this change, congressmen had violated due process, modifying a statutory law, which the guarantees law is, via an ordinary law, such as the budget law. Duque stated that a judge cannot tell a president what he should and should not object to. This week marks one year since Hurricane Iota, 
devastated Colombia's Caribbean islands of San Andres, Providencia and Santa Catalina. Thousands were affected. On Providencia and Santa Catalina, more than 95% of infrastructure was destroyed. After the hurricane hit, President Iván Duque promised to rebuild the island of Providencia in 100 days. He failed to meet that ambitious goal and even denied having set it, despite being captured on film by numerous media outlets. Only half of the houses promised have been restored or rebuilt. Meanwhile, there is no hospital, fire station, police station or schools. At least 70 families are still living in tents. And coronavirus cases in Colombia are climbing, now at a daily average of 2,500 new cases, having been at 1,500 new daily cases since September. 65% of the country have now had one dose of vaccine. 45% are now fully vaccinated. From Tuesday the 16th of November, it will be compulsory to present a COVID vaccination card to enter places such as bars, cinemas, stadiums and museums. Though some have said this forceful measure could lead people to falsify the document, the Ministry of Health warned that this could be a criminal offence, leading to six to eight years in prison. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday. And we're back. This is episode 402 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. My very special guest this week is Joanna Gomez. She's currently in Cali, but her uh, intermittent home right now is in London. She's, uh, uh, she's an anthropologist from the Nacional in Bogota. She's got her MA from Goldsmiths University in London, and she's currently doing her PhD in Goldsmiths as well. And well, no, not sorry, Goldsmith, UCL, so University College London. Uh, and it's a very special episode. Why is it a special episode? Because we're coming at it from left field a little bit. But before we get into that, let me welcome Joanna on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. No, it's a great pleasure. And we were put in touch by Lina Beatriz Pinto, who did an excellent episode on Leishmaniasis and the Colombian conflict, which was very popular. And it seems so that people are responding to different kinds of episodes. And this episode is a little bit, well, I guess it's kind of personal and it's also academic and so on. But I want to know, and I'm just going to bring it out there, you're writing your PhD thesis at UCL about witchcraft in the Llanos of Colombia? Is, uh, tell us a little bit more. Correct me. Uh, well, it's, it's precisely that. I think it, it's, um, it's brujeria. Yeah. You know that brujeria uh, translates as any of both uh, sorcery of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So it groups uh, different sort of magical practices, not necessarily practices that cause harm to people or bring misfortune, but just like different kind of practices. And I um, studied this uh, brujeria that was particularly used by paramilitaries in the Eastern Plains. Wow. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, there is so much to talk about here. And I think we should start from the very beginning. How did you decide that this was going to be your doctoral thesis? Well, I... To be honest, I was not particularly um, interested in brujería at the beginning. I mean, I guess that, uh, you know, as a Colombian, you, you hear the story since you're very little. You People talk about brujería all the time and, and you gather with your friends to tell these stories and, you you know, it's, we'll talk for hours and hours about it. So I was curious, as any Colombian can be curious. You know, you know, we cultivate, we culturally cultivate this curiosity for this topic, but as an intellectual endeavor, no, no particularly. So I came across with this topic because I was interesting, interested in studying um, paramilitarism from a cultural perspective, not too much about, you know, the political or the historical, the history of paramilitarism that was very well studied today, but 
to see, to understand how they uh, really change cultures, how they get to this place and they change the music, they change the food, they change even fashion, you know? So I, I, I was interested since I live in the Guaviare region for a while and I saw paramilitaries kind of taking over the local ways of dressing and, you know, there are certain land, they position it Norteña Musi in town and all these very subtle things, you know, this cultural capital of paramilitaries. So, but I, you know, it's a topic that is very difficult to research as an ethnographer. You know, how you go there and <laughs> you ask questions. So I, I basically, I started to pay attention to the stories about paramilitaries using uh, sorcery, using brujería, when I was living in Villavicencio for a while as well. Uh, they were very, very popular, these stories. So I just, I thought, you know, I kind of married the two things. I thought it was uh, an interesting point of view to understand paramilitarism more than, you know, as armed, armed actors causing violence and but as you know, as cultural agents. Mm. This is, so that's, that's why it's not very interesting. <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating. Now, I've spent a fair amount of time in Guaviare, uh, around mm, San, San Jose, Jose, and a little bit outside. I've also been to, you know, up in Meta, where Meta meets Caqueta, uh, San Juan de Losada, right there on the river. And, and I am now thinking of exactly the billar there in the center of town only played musica norteña only played yes. the, the mexican musica norteña and so now i'm fascinated and i think we just need to do a, a sidebar here is how i mean we know I mean, most people who listen to this podcast will know about the paramilitary groups you know the, the i would say right wing uh militarized groups i don't know really i i have to be very careful how i phrase this but that sort of landowners started and then they got funding through different uh, entities and then they moved into their own kidnapping and drug trade and then have become through the 80s and the 90s probably the i, I think actually uh, very well proven the the sort of group that made committed the most atrocities in colombia's conflict and then there was the sort of uh, in inverted commas, demobilization uh, during the government of Alvaro Uribe. That was the demobilization of the Auto Defenses uh, Unidas de Colombia. But of course, this just uh, provided an opportunity for splinters. And then you've got the Clan del Golfo now, and you have the, who were the Urabeños, who are the Gaitanistas, who are, the, and then there's the Pelaos, and there's the Pelusos, and the whatever else. And so I. I many, many heads. Yes. I'm curious, though at the end of this, is how, if you could give us very brief background in how paramilitarism changed, like, the fashion uh, and changed, no. because that's just fascinating. I'm, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really, I've got to get my head around it. <laughs> okay, so, you know, I didn't study this at the end properly because I got into the brujeria stuff. But the things that I observed in San Jose, if you know this town, San Jose is this town that is kind of on the corner with the forest ends and the flatlands begin, you know. And San Jose and all these communities there have this river culture. They are communities built around this, this you know, the ecology of the river and the ecology of the raining and rain and rain season. Uh, so. I could, what I could see is that uh, these paramilitaries arrived with the uh, ethos of cattle ranching. They are very, how you say this, you know, all these uh, wearing hats, very Janeiro outfits, wearing hats, uh, wearing uh, boots, uh, certain marks of brands of watch, watches, um, necklaces. Uh, rings, golden rings, big motorbikes. You know, you can see these things in very other rural areas of Colombia as well. But you can see that in the moment I was there, I was there in 2006, 2007, 2008, because I was the different projects. They were, you know, they were ruling town. 
that was their kingdom basically so they you could see this in these bars in the villares you know these guns of paramilitaries hanging outside and they all were wearing kind of the same things and they were playing this norteña music and and you will hear also people like old people in particular i love to talk to old people to you hear the stories like how it used to be different before them um, and one thing i would say that is that you know like societies change and you in and there is some nostalgic outcry of old people in everywhere all the time <laughs> you know like we were talking about how much <laughs> london has changed and all of that but it's interesting to hear how they point out paramilitaries as the factor of change and it's definitely it's a, it's a very interesting topic to research you know mm. As I, I was there in two, the first time in 2007, and I recall meeting uh, people. I was doing stories on the Nukak Maku, obviously the Nukak oh. tribe who were in, you know, in almost, I would say, displacement camps on the outskirts of town. Uh, uh, and I did some on the Guayabero people as well. Yeah, uh, I was working with them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah, yeah. maybe we met. <laughs> we, it's possible. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I was trying to find also the guy who was translating the Bible or the New Testament into their language, which I found quite fascinating it was a, a kind of a bit like at field at play in the fields of the lord um but that said uh i did recognize these groups outside the biaris and i did meet some people working for ngos and said you know they already know you're here they know yeah exactly the story and you know you are being watched and i was like i can tell because there is this undercurrent of aggression uh that's there but uh yeah you got out <laughs> you could you got out. And <laughs> yeah i do uh, love the fact that you're doing ethnography because <laughs> it does mean talking to people and talking to the old people is wonderful because yeah they also have a way of speaking don't they you know and so uh and let's bring this to our brujeria because are they the people that then in, introduced you to this to the sorcery going on because when I, you know, everybody who listens to this knows I spend most of my time in Montpos or Bogota, and and my in-laws will talk about brujas all the time, and they will talk about something being, you know, done by a witch, or the suspicion that someone's done something through a witch, some black magic, and I was thinking of two phrases that they say a lot, te puedo contar algo, pero que las brujas no nos escuche. It's one thing yeah. that my swagger says, and that's a way of blocking. Apparently, you say that, and the bruja can't listen. And the other <laughs> one was, was, yo no creo en las brujas, pero de que las hay, las hay. Is yes. the other one. Yes. So, so tell us, just, just, just plunge into the, the witchcraft and say how, so you, you recognize mm. the, the sort of the nature people with the river and this, this uh, connection to the earth. I think. Mm. You know, like I definitely agree. Like brujería is omnipresent in every every single aspect of life, and and I have a very hard time at the beginning of my PhD trying because my when they say like you have to define what brujería is, it's like ah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so because you have these uh, different practices, like brujería is very uh, rela relational. So, like, so for some people, brujería will be doing some healing, you know, like, for example, for some Pentecostal pastors, even doing meditation is brujería. Mm -hmm. And and also because it's, you can use brujería for every situation that you encounter in life. So, uh, you know, more than one magical tradition, more than santería, spiritism, white or red magic, all these kind of little traditions. I think that brujería is a way of thinking mm -hmm. about these magical powers intervening in every aspect of life mm. that's and and that's and that's how it is and that's how it's so omnipresent in, in people's life i also i also i mean in cali we have uh, you know these afro communities this influence of afro colombian people so we have a lot of brujeria talk all the time mm. and 
I mean, and, and I, I didn't hear the first um, saying that you said. Like, I never heard that. That was the first time I heard that. Ah, there you go. So that must be very Caribbean. I yeah. So. I think that also there are these local repertories about brujería that are fitted by these uh, different type of communities ah. that have these different practices. Although brujería is very eclectic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, second, the second saying, uh, yo no creo en brujas, pero que las hay, las hay. Oh, definitely. I couldn't translate that into English no, properly. No, How no. did you translate that? Well, I'm saying, <laughs> I don't believe in witches, but whatever there are, there are. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. It's not really very good, yes. is it? <laughs> yeah, it's el, el de, de que las. It's, it's very hard to translate. Yeah. Um, but it's... It, I, I will say something about that same, mm. that it was one of my first, uh, you know, reflections about the topic is that there is always some ambiguity mm-hmm. regarding if people believe or not in brujería, even if it is, people talk about it or, you know, they, even when they practice, they always have this little pocket of skepticism with them. People express doubts. And when the sorcerers were, which I, I talked to four sorcerers, sorcerers during the field, yeah. um, one male, three females, and they were also, there was this lady who, uh, she's, she's very famous in Villavicencio, and she's very old as well. She gave me a couple of interviews, very, very, you know, like suspicious of people. And she will tell me when the, that she hears there is a new witch in town, she goes there and she passes herself as a client to test her powers. Because she say half of the sorcerers are, are a fraud, are mm-hmm. tricksters, are just not real. Mm-hmm. So they she are can alike. recognize by testing their powers, she can recognize if they're a fraud or if they're real. And did she say she finds frauds? All the time. All the time. <laughs> are you hearing this? about like people who are really into it even those people they express these doubts and that's why i cannot i mean when people ask me but you believe in these things you know particularly british people in academic (laughs) environments it's like well i don't know i mean i it's kind of what is to believe what does it mean to believe let's start there that's the question but um, it's curious, isn't it? Because it's not as if it's something that, I mean, I don't think it's obviously it's not because I've visited uh, Santeros in Cuba. I visited Brujas in the jungle in, in, in Ecuador. I visited, uh, you know, a, a candombe ceremony in Bahia in Brazil. Uh, I'm sure I've seen some stuff in Guyana. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty widespread in, in the region. But then also in England, you know the the Wiccans and the uh, uh, those that go down uh, the Druids aren't they just you know sorcerers as well aren't they I mean this is something that exists quite quite strongly and profoundly in the English uh, British islands isles and so you know when you read all about the the Celts and the and the Gaelic people and so on so I think I don't know maybe it's academic circles but I want to know that I mean this is yeah maybe so but you went and said I'm going to focus on the Llano so the sort of the eastern Mm -hmm. plains May I ask what were you doing interviewing Santeros in Cuba? (laughs) I wasn't I was actually just visiting I'm just I'm totally curious. It's not as if I, I, I don't know if I believe or if I don't believe, but there's something that's happened to me over time is that I've been very skeptical most of my life, I think, being brought up as a very, in a very Protestant background. Uh, I had to go to church a lot, uh, and therefore, therefore that I rejected it. You know, I rejected that that general sort of uh, religious upbringing, and so therefore I I ended up, I think I ended up just exploring other things. And then when I became a journalist, I just wanted to bring in other uh, inter- interests. And then I worked in the jungle in Ecuador for a bit, and and someone said, "Oh, do you want to meet the sort of the shaman?" I was like, "Yeah, why not?" And he, and yeah, and in that kind of thing. And so each time I'm in a place, if something pops up that's quite curious, then I'll then I'll just sort of go along. And 
And they're all different, but there's all similar traits. But what I feel at the end of this, and what I'm getting to, is that you know, from my time in Montpau, so I've now been spending time there since 2007, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law genuinely believe. And my father-in-law is from a town on the Magdalena River called Gamarra in Cesar. And Gamarra is known for having the most amount of black magic witches, I think, in Colombia. So he grew up thinking that. So one of his nieces, so one of my wife's cousins, she will readily say to me, oh, yeah, well, I live next door to a bruja. And she'd tell me about things that happened in my house. And so, therefore, I can't, I can't deny or reject their beliefs. And I, so that's, I think that's where I come from. It's like, I may not believe, but I, I must understand that, the, that people are truly affected by this. And then one other story is that staying in my house in Montpós, one night we heard something outside. And of course, you know, I was sent outside because it was my wife and my, my children and I in the room. No one else in the house. And it, it was a vulture going down the hallway. Uh, it was injured and it could... I, yeah, I know, they stink as well. But it, it couldn't... And so I had to chase this vulture out. And I, I'm at, after a lot of flailing around, this is like midnight, and I threw the doors open and I almost got it out. And it was the moment a police truck went past and they were watching a, an English guy in his pajamas chasing a vulture around his head. <laughs> I mean, but <laughs> when I said this, and then I said this to someone in Montpós who is to, said to be a witch, but we get on very well, uh, mm. uh, a good witch I, well I don't know I mean once I was talking to her and someone came walking behind me you know shaking their finger at me saying don't you know don't talk to her and I'm like well I treat mm. everyone the same but anyway she said that's not good uh, witches take the form of vultures when they want to come into your house that's what they told me so I don't know did you hear that but I want to get back to yeah. your Um but the Janos mm. is full of witches as far as I know Yes, yes. It, it definitely, I mean, you have these sort of imaginaries about places. And now you mentioned this uh, little town that is like most witches in Colombia. I think uh, Tolima has one town like that, Urabá as well, the Chocó as well. <laughs> so, yes. So there is always this, uh, this imaginaries about these places being the most ridden by, by witches. But all Colombia is is written by witches and the Janus in particular have this reputation and since I'm little I heard that many you know all the stories about brujería half of them came from the Janus all these espantos La Patasola, La Madre Monte all of these came from the Janus and and the more I read about the Janus the more I, I find out that um, this is this came from a long time this came from colonial history as well you know the Janus was isolated as many other Colombian frontiers as well but they were particularly special because it's one-fifth of the Colombian territory it's a big big area to be isolated for so long basically until like after the violence it just after the 60s started becoming like you know integrated into the Colombian into the Colombian nation-state. The colonization, the, the, the expanse, the, the migrations into the area. But so... Yeah, and linking with, with the economy. So like these, these kind of very far away remote areas, like the Janus for so long, I think that that is associated with this sort of land of magical happenings, the land of the legend. You, know, this, you, you, you head down there and what do you do? Knock on knock on their doors and say, "Listen, I'm doing my my PhD. I'm fascinated. How does it? Because this is going to take time." Yes, of course. That's why you with you do your PhD. You in in anthropology, you have one year to do your PhD. I ended up taking two months more because precisely my topic was very difficult. So I. I didn't know if I was going to be able to research my topic, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So, because uh, we precisely, you kind of, even you ask, even more complicated, imagine me asking paramilitaries, hey, so you guys, uh, do you use brujería? <laughs> no, not possible, right? But I, I guess, you know, that those guys aren't going to give you that much information, but the, the brujas 
probably did right they said well yeah okay, we do have a lot of uh, we did have or we do have a lot of uh paramilitary clients because they are clients because you mm. pay right yeah yeah they are clients they are also friends but um well, th this is the thing. I started my PhD. I start. I have plan A, plan B. Plan A was studying this brujeria that is used particularly by these people, paramilitary groups in this context, mm -hmm. because I already knew the stories. And the plan B was to study brujeria in general, mm. Too big. because I didn't know how complicated it was going was going to be. So I went there with a family to live with a family this, um, you know, related, it's a, fa it's a friend's family. Yeah. I went to live in a little town, stay with them, incredibly generous, open, and amazing people who go open their, their doors in their house. And I, I ended up from there building up my networks, mm -hmm. you know, in the neighborhood, in town. And is it, this is one of these towns in which uh, paramilitaries is still rule. They are not hanging out there with their guns because like in you know two thousands mm. when they are they were completely visible, shameless, <laughs> but they know who get in and who get out. Mm -hmm. They know who you are mm -hmm. and all of that. So uh, I was very I, I use this indirect questioning approach. Mm -hmm. So I will ask about brujeria in general, mm -hmm. and I will see when the stories came out if they came they came out at the end. Of course, how prominent they are how people talk about them, what are the effects that it has in, on people. And in these networks of people, I met combatants and ex-combatants with demobilized people, I, and I met the sorcerers, because it's a small town, so everyone at the end knows everyone. And they know you're asking. <laughs> yeah, that, yes, yeah. they, they knew what I was asking, and after a while, when I was safe enough, I, was ask, I started asking about the concrete practices they used. But yeah, in, um, you know what this thing about the vulture and all this, yeah. <laughs> this uh, how you call, how you say this, it's like a mysticism. Yeah. It's like life is, is embedded. Like before I came to the field, one of the reasons why the family took me in was because she, the lady told me a week after I arrived that this beetle came fly into the room where I was going to stay and stayed there a whole night. And she knew that a good visit was going to come. And so she opened the doors for me when I asked, hey, can I stay here for a while where I get my place? But yeah. It was a beetle. So, we have in the coast, if it's a butterfly flies in and lands on the wall, then you're going to have good visits. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, 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 we've got a lot of it. But this is, I mean, this is, as you say, a sort of mysticism, but it's fascinating. But I, I mean, why, I have to ask this, why do we, and we do, why or can we connect uh, this brujeria with, with paramilitaries? I mean, why were they, because it's much more than like the guerrilla, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you tell me. Well, yes, I, there are all these practices that I call occult aggression in my thesis that are uh, precisely when someone sends you cause intent to cause misfortune, you know, to you or hurt you, your family, your business. And, but at this, at the brujeria that uh, paramilitaries were using was this difference. So uh, I identified two practices because they, they use, you know, in their personal life, they use everything, but for the activities of the group, there were some practices associated with um, creating these bulletproof shields. It's called the cruzados, and uh, and the, these these rituals uh, entail to mix the, this person's body with a spirit, you know. So the spirits would create this this spiritual entity would create this chill, and they will gain this supernatural strength in combat, and they will become so brave. And you know, so daring. Uh, so this was was the stories I was I was researching. But I came out talking about that with people because the stories are very similar and are very simple. They are like basically, oh, I saw this guy wearing this amulet and the, he was all covered in bruises because the bullets just um, bounce on their skin. And that's it. That's the story. <laughs> uh, that's the story that people tell. Paramilitaries tell another stories about them. But there were other kinds of stories. 
uh, there were the stories about these people who make a pact with the devil. So they were not only bulletproof, but they were also, uh, they have money and they were very cruel. They would kill randomly. People have a lot of stories associated with that. They kill the neighbor in this, in this way, or, you know, atrocious crimes that are related with atrocious crimes. And they are, uh, they have all these sort of weird little powers. Like, for example, this, there's a very famous story about paramilitary called Pollo Roger. Uh, he's been quoted in, you know, in very testimonies in peace and justice sentences and stuff. I have to read for my thesis and know all these stories in town. And people were so scared of this guy. And he and, and people would tell stories like, uh, so he used to used to grab a snake, and he would look at the snake in the eye and would make him make make it sleep. And that's <laughs> that's the story. And so you have these. Uh, powers in battle but also they have this very quirky or i don't know useless powers How, why do you need to put a snake to sleep and that that those little powers was the ones causing more the most terror you know there was other person who's called him uh, uh chavo it has a mexican you know all these all these uh all these all these paramilitaries have nicknames um so he, his power, but it was, you know, he was strong and, you know, like Rambo-like kind of guy. But at the same time, he would walk, walk under the rain without getting wet. <laughs> he would hang his hammock. In one, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what did you make out of, uh, I mean, how did you interpret these practices? It's, 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 I, I have to say, I've tried. It's not easy. They're irreductible sometimes. The, I've heard the one. I've heard the one about being sort of bulletproof. Um, but how? I mean, one of the one of the times it was sort of like being bathing in in. Well, I think it was vulture blood or cat blood or something. I don't know. What did? What was it? Cat blood. And also, I've heard also that sometimes people eat eat vulture to get rid of cancer. I, 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 that's what another thing I've heard. I, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, you hear these stories and I never know because I think it was the vulture one and my stomach was turning so much because they, they just stink. And, um, about dipping the bullet in, in blood as well. Isn't there something? Yes. Yes. That's, uh, um, this is the thing that I find out. I, but I, my thesis, I'm focusing only in the practice to get bulletproof men because it's very extended, you know, all the other practices. And, and, but I think that all these little stories that one hears around, it has an effect. Like, it has that, like, I could see you, your puzzle. You want to know more. You want to hear more stories. You want to connect the dots. You want to interpret. It lures you to this reality where you have to just ponder in what's true, what, what, why, why people do this. It's like it's a, it's an interpretative world. This brujeria practices kind of create in people in the environment, and it's kind of fun. You have to admit engaging in this conversation, in this collective speculation about what's real, what's not. Why is this happening? Um, so when I focus in this practice and I isolated a little bit of, uh, you know, like I, I just look at the practice and what effect has in people and, and how, and, and how uh, you know, people experience that because I also talk about the rituals that the people went through and people who, people who were crusado as well. So, you, you, you start to see that you find very similar practices in other parts of Colombia. You, for example, you have the thing about dipping the, the bullets in, in the coating it in blood. Sometimes some pastors said that this is also children's bloods were, were used and human sacrifices were used in the plains. Yeah, it's a very, <laughs> very dark stories. Uh, but a, it gets to a point when there is no possible to find one pattern. 
So you have to look at one practice and only that practice to be able to see how in this very concrete instance this practice acquires meaning for people. How I'm not going to fall, you know, I'm not going to be seduced by Brujeria's game of just continued, you know, endless speculation about it's, things. So, so let me, I want to talk, wait, was it Pollo, what was the name? Pollo Rojo? Pollo Roger. Pollo Roger. Pollo Roger sounds like a, you know, a chicken yeah. eatery, uh, like, you know, sort of Cali or something. I, um, <laughs> you know, it was called Pollo because he was uh, 13 when he was recruited oh, yeah. and he was de the deadliest paramilitaries when he was like 18. He can sleep a snake. I guess you could say that he's dominating nature and also something that's, you know, deadly dangerous. Uh, I, that, would, that would instill fear sleeping snakes catching snakes and so on but tell us i mean so the the bulletproof this is the bulletproofing is your your key investigation this the la cruces and so that is bathing in, in cat's blood that's the one you find or are there other ways cats i think um I separated this um, bulletproof men from the other tahats, other kind of powers, especially, particularly, also the power to seduce women and the That's power to give money. Um, <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, uh, uh, love magic. All these kind of practices are like very, very popular everywhere. Um, so, do you know this? Uh, this. Um, uh, people who have other kind of powers, they were very associated with the devil, mm -hmm. with sacrifice, with the idea of making a pact involving blood. And so, so I, I separate them because the ritual to be bulletproof, sometimes, most of the time, is regarded as white magic. You know, like just created this very good luck in yourself. Very, even if you're creating this luck, but agreeing with a spirit to protect you, taking in a spirit. It's like a voluntary possession, basically. But in many instances, but for the sorcerers, for people, and for combatants themselves, this pain cruzado is not black magic. It's kind of in a very gray zone. Whereas all the other powers and everything that involves blood and pacts are dark magic. The worst kind of magic and that you can black magic use is designed so there is this to harm people. I mean, that's just the clarity there. To harm people. To, to yes, but at the same time, when you're doing this, this uh, you're becoming, you're acquiring these great powers. Like back in the day, you know, pack, the pack with the devil story. What is the pack with the devil? You, you surrender your humanity. You give yourself to the devil. So you're harming yourself. It's an aggression of yourself, I guess that's you can you can say that. And and there are many stories about this 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 paramilitaries uh, making a pact with the devil, which again has regional variations. So for example, in the plains, the story with the black cat, and there is a book that is called San Cipriano's book. They were was very popular among paramilitaries. And it was very popular in the middle and higher ranks. It was not as popular for uh, combatants because making a pact with the devil is a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> there is no way out when you make a pact with the devil, basically. You never return. So people who were very into their paramilitary life, you know, five, six years into it, who were climbing positions, they were willing to make this commitment to protect themselves and to mm. escalate but, but, more. But again, why the paramilitaries? Or, why did they particularly, uh, or so many of them, veer towards brujeria? I think that in every, uh, like we say, brujeria is everywhere. Everywhere. You could find it also in uh, guerrilla groups, but it takes different forms. That's what I'm, I'm claiming. And and I'm not saying that there are no Cruzado uh, people in guerrilla groups or or even in the military, you know? But uh, 
these practices became prominent in certain places and certain moments. And so my, my investigation goes for to ask why, why so many combatants need, needed this? What does it mean for, for this region that this was happening, what people are telling the stories so much? They were so popular and I, I didn't know when I started, I thought because this was the place where I heard the stories, I go there, no? So, uh, but the more I read and the more I investigated, I find out that Urabá and the plains are the two regions where the stories, these stories come from. And you can you can look in the press, uh, you can look in the peace and justice sentences testimonies, uh, Centro Memoria Historica reports. Uh, you can talk to the mobilized people, and they will talk about cruzados from the plains or from the Urabá. And it's very interesting, even. Um, there was this TV show called the Tricain, Los Tres Caines. It was a soap opera, right? Sí. Yeah, it was like a series of I opera it, so, thingy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I watch um, a lot of narco novelas. I think they are very mm, useful it's for research. researching this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no enjoyment. But um, you know, this, uh, this is a portrait of paramilitaries, uh, you know, la, the life of uh, Carlos Castaño and his brothers, the founders of the uh, AUC. Uh, when they go to the plains, when the AUC goes to the plains, it happens halfway through the, the series, they go there to fight a paramilitary group that is called the Buitragos. They were the local paramilitary groups and they wanted the AUC to merge with the plains structures. But the Wittrago were too proud and say, no, 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 this is my business. And then they, they engage in open war. This is widely documented. But in the TV series, these practices were so popular that they introduced brujeria only when they go to the place to fight, to meet with this uh, paramilitary hmm. drug lord. Um, so it's, it's strongly associated with the place. And I... <laughs> I mean, I have, to, I'm trying to come, trying to interpret this in my thesis. I have a theoretical bet on it, but still, still well, puzzles I think, me. I think it's a, a better thesis at the end if you, if you are still asking questions, because it allows not only yourself, but others to, to take up the mantle, because sometimes you're just like, I can't go any further. But tell me, one thing about your because i mean we could talk for hours i think but about your research when you talk to ex-combatants how do they feel uh, about having let's say participated in pacts with the devil and so on uh, is there regret i didn't get to me i didn't meet anyone with a pact with the devil because they are all dead or they continue to be active paramilitaries. It seems that the path with the devil is when you are too far gone, even to demobilize in the, you know, you don't come back. Whereas the ones that are subjected to bulletproof chips, chills, and you know, this cruzado brujeria, um, there, is a, there are feelings of shame. It's very shameful to participate from the rituals to have been cruzado. It's actually, it was so difficult to talk about it that they were more comfortable talking about all the awful things that paramilitaries did in the region. Uh, you know, limpiezas and selective killings. And they were more comfortable talking about these things than actually talking about the rituals. It took me a while, and many of them would all talk about seeing other people going through the rituals, but never themselves. So it took me a while to find two people who actually say, yes, I did this. I went through this. So, and, and I guess that that comes from the fact that, you know, like for example, in, in the case in the story, you tell about the vulture in your house and people saying, this is, could be Bruja who is like doing something to you. Uh, brujeria is something that the victim of Brujeria, is a story that the victim of Brujeria claims. You know, I was victim and that triggers some reactions. You protect yourself. You try to find out who did this, why, why did they this? If you have to, you know, go through clean sense or do through, subject yourself to other rituals to get rid of this curse. So it's, 
it, it changes your behavior, it activates something, and then you will tell the story about how you were victim of brujería and how you no longer like vultures or something like that. It just changes something. It becomes part of your personal yeah. and familiar life or something. But the person who does brujería is never part of the story. Who, who, who actually, you, I know they exist because the sorcerers mm-hmm. work for them and they have, they make a living wage out of these practices. You know, they, there are people who have these feelings and go there and say like, I want this person out of my life and, or, you know, I want this man for myself and yeah. nobody else. Or, mm-hmm. I want revenge. And so the person who actually asks or triggers the events is like a ghost. It's, you know, it's like, you, and you, you don't know who, you know, they're hidden from the story. So when you've heard Crusado stories, they are the protagonist, they are the ones who did that to themselves. So they, they, they have this stigma of very socially sanctioned practice, but they are openly exposing themselves in, in their time, like part of, um, Crusados were used amulets and they would paint their, their nails in black. So you're publicly saying, yes, I did brujería on myself. And that comes with a price that many people who demobilize afterwards is paying with a lot of shameful feelings. More than guilt, actually, is very it's, it's, strange. There's a lot mixed up in there. I, you know, well, I, I think we, we're going to have to leave it for another day <laughs> because there's so much. Or I'm just, one, <laughs> yeah, when, you're, when your thesis comes out and then the book, of course, you'll, you'll share the links with us so we can read it. But so I have one, I have a final kind of question here. Well, I've got a couple. I heard down the grapevine, and it's something that your friends have said, that you've had a spell put on you by one of the witches and then before you respond to that the second thing is you've spent so long investigating and researching I, I, I'm curious if you're walking down the street or so on can you recognize someone who may be a witch or a sorcerer no okay good <laughs> no 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 but you can they they have there are certain, I have certain sensibility when people talk about these things, like the, mm. the true sorcerer, they, they are not very vocal about it. They are very, how you say that, you know, cautious. The tricksters or the more healers, curandero type of people, they are very willing to talk and they will tell you they will have this power and this other power. And they are the ones who... You know, you just have to keep an eye on it. Maybe it's just people who want attention. But yeah, I couldn't tell. Okay. <laughs> and the spell on you? Tell us about this one. The spell of me. Well, it, it happens oh, twice, actually. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this is, even if I was not researching brujería, this is what happens when you go to a little town as a, you know, a woman, young and, and then and you start you know just to hang out with people but the first one was related with the fact that someone started to tell me that i have to be careful because i someone could tie me up tie me you know like a bind me like in a love spell mm-hmm. it's how you say them have you heard about chundul yes i have um but i can't it's like a perfume it's like a perfume, okay. you know, in the Guaviare it's very popular as well because it's a very indigenous, it's a plant, basically. They, they, do, this, okay. they do this liquid and you, they put it on the cells and then you're bewitched by the person. You, you're, you're irresistible or, or you become... <laughs> yeah, it's like okay. a love spell, exactly. But it has, okay. it has like, a, you have to recite a spell, it has like a whole preparation. But people were telling me that this particular person was doing brujería to me, was trying to tie me up because... I was spending too much time with them and I just found them. I just found this person very fascinating, you know, okay. very knowledgeable. So it activates speculation. So you really get to a point in which you ask, mm, is this happening? But I mean, should I ask someone to, you know, and I, I did, I consulted. That's what this is the next step. You have suspicions, you have a scapegoat, and then you consult with someone. 
And this person told me, no, you're fine. <laughs> you're clean. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but it was like a two months ruminating about it. Like, <laughs> and, and then the second one? The second one, it was because um, I have many problems writing out my dissertation. Uh, you are not alone. That's every, that's every academic. <laughs> yeah, it's the PhD curse, basically. But, okay. but in Colombia, in the context we are, People will say to me, many people, actually, some of the sorcerers told me, you know, you, you talk about your work too much and people are, feel envy of you being successful on, you know, having the privilege to have higher education in this context. And I think that someone is doing this to you. Someone is doing something to you. Someone is tying you up. Um, and then activates speculation. So I'm still in the speculation phase. <laughs> uh, because you know it's just been very series of unlucky events. It's not only only thesis, but um, but that that's that's the fact it has. That's, I, I, this could it has to pass. I could set things in motion and go to cleansings and all do all these things. I'm just trying to forget about it. I would never get to the bottom of of the situation to the true actual true of the situation. But it's definitely a doubt that is planted there. You know, it's something, uh, and it has to do, I mean, if I'm going to analyze it on my own terms, I do it to myself what I'm doing in the thesis. It has to do also for this, you know, I introduce inequality in a social situation. I come from this, I'm in this privileged position in, in this social context. So other people will assume that other people will be envious of that. It says this, this envy is so ubiquitous, you know, it's like, it's, people assume that other person has envy, but they're saying like, yeah, I feel envy and then I, therefore I did this. Um, so yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not <laughs> very interesting when you start studying these things, like it takes the phone out sometimes of, of the topic. Um, well, I, th I like to think that we've we've drawn away a bit from from academia, and maybe this is a little bit of a, a catharsis for you to talk about it in a more conversational manner and not not so definitely. Heavy. <laughs> yeah, um, I am not a brujo <laughs> that I know of, so I can't lift the spell. Oh, I can't thank you help. so much. I'm, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. Um, mm. Although I was referred to actually as a, a, a um brujo in in uh, in Caqueta, not far from Chiriquete. So mm. they said once there. So you know, I, I don't think so though. But the seed of doubt was planted. <laughs> <laughs> what did as they say? Well, what I was told to stop taking photographs by one local person from the Witoto uh, mm -hmm. family. And and I said to someone else who was showing us round, another person from a different Witoto family, and they said, no, he's a bad, bad person. He's the leader of that family. And then that afternoon, he was, he was then uh, ejected as the leader of, of his sort of area. And everyone went, it was you. It was you. They pointed at me for doing it. Oh, so there you go. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't remembered that story in a long time. I, I, you made me remember that now. Uh, perhaps well. I should not reflect on this too much. But, um, <laughs> um, did you, uh, just, can I have a final question? What, did you do something about yeah. the vulture? Uh, well, we had to clean the walls because it stank, because it kept flying into the walls. Uh, because it had an injured foot. And, uh, and then we got a plant called Mata Raton. I don't know what the translation is. And we had to wash, because uh, it went into one room, because the doors were open. And that's where it got trapped. And apparently, it was looking for someone in that room. So the person that normally sleeps in that room, who's actually normally my brother-in-law. So there you go. And so we had to wash down the floors and walls with Mata Raton okay you yeah you did a cleansing for the house yeah, i didn't know yeah, you know, yeah but that's what that's what people said that's what my family said we needed to do and so yeah I you mean, go who on am i to say no yeah who am i to say no yeah and it doesn't, it doesn't do any harm no exactly that's what i figured but listen 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this. It's really amazing. And I'm looking forward to reading articles written by you and this thesis. I'm looking I forward will. to publish. I really want to share this information with people in the world so people can comment. I'm really looking forward. I it's, Thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it was, no, it, it's uh, very nice to talk about uh, the thesis and all these circumstances. Also because it's a, it's a topic that it becomes very personal at some point. Oh yeah, definitely. So and 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 it will be in English, so I'll you know I'll be able to devour it. <laughs> so, so there you go. Because sometimes academia in Spanish is just a bit much for me. But um, listen, thank you so much, uh, Joanna Gomez. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing what really is a quite fascinating subject of study. Thank I you wish so you much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank no, you. I wish you all the best. So anyway, we'll sign off. We've been talking to Joanna Gomez, who's an anthropologist from the Universidad Nacional in Bogota. Got an MA at Goldsmiths in London, and she's currently writing her PhD thesis for, at UCL. So we'll be back next week with more interesting stories about Colombia. But I think you'll agree that this was really quite, uh, quite astounding. But I've been Richard McCall, and this has been Colombia Calling this week episode. 402. Be sure to tune in next week. Thank you again and bye-bye. Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.